The Bob Murphy Show, episode 268. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be talking with Daniel Miller, who's president of the Texas Nationalist Movement and author of the book, Texit why and how Texas will leave the union, a book that I highly recommend for those interested in American state secession in general and Texas secession in particular. So Daniel and I are going to have a lively discussion where we cover the realistic prospects for Texas independence, the lessons from history, looking around the world at secessionist or independence movements. And of course, we end the episode by dealing with a lot of the typical objections from Americans about, well, wait a minute, Texas leaving the Union? That sounds kind of crazy. Or wouldn't they just invade? They're not going to let you go. What are you talking about? So we cover all that stuff. Let me just mention, it was a few days ago that we recorded it. You can still tell right now that I have a lingering cold, but at the time it was really kicking in. And so my voice is pretty bad in this interview, but I had to postpone before for a different reason. And I don't want to keep asking Daniel to push it back. And I really wanted to get this episode up. So we went ahead and went through it. And Daniel was a trooper and did most of the talking because he could tell my voice was not up to par. So with all that, here we go. My discussion with Daniel Miller on why and how Texas will leave the union. Well, Daniel, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. So folks, let me just get this out of the way. As you can tell, I've got a bad cold that hit me. So the only good thing about this is maybe later I can do uh, some people at the karaoke bar that normally I can't, like maybe some Bing Crosby, but that's the only benefit. So Daniel, you're here. Why don't you just tell the folks a bit about your background and your organization, and then we'll probably get into more specifics about what the big topic of the day is. Sure. Not a problem at all. So obviously my name is Daniel Miller. I'm president of an organization called the Texas Nationalist Movement. It was founded in 2005 to advance the political, cultural, and economic independence of Texas. But I've actually been involved in working for Texas independence since 1996. You want to get more specific, that's August 24th, 1996, somewhere around two in the afternoon. But that really is what we're working for. Well, I have to ask you, what so specifically happened at that moment? Well, I mean, that was literally the conversion moment for me. That was the moment that I made the decision that Texas independence, you know, seeing Texas become a self-governing independent nation was what I was going to you know, dedicate myself to. As I tell people often, that was the time that, that I made the decision to work until Texas became a free self-governing independent nation or until the grave digger pats me in the face with a shovel, whichever comes first. Okay, so so for you, this isn't just a day job. I mean, this really is your life's mission then. Yeah, it is. I don't get paid by the organization. So outside of that, I have to work as in my profession, which is a, as a technology consultant. Mm. But uh, Texas Independence is not the direction that I saw my life going. I mean, I popped out of high school. I wanted to be an astrophysicist. But that, that my life trajectory definitely changed. 
the moment that I really embraced the idea of Texas, you know, becoming a self-governing independent nation. And I've been working for it ever since. It's not a hobby for me. Mm-hmm. It's really kind of my life's work. Well, in a sense, Washington, D.C. is like a black hole. So your interests aren't too different from the astrophysicist. Yeah, it's odd how much, you know, I still like to study physics. Mm-hmm. I do, even though it has nothing to do with my vocation or do with this, but you'd be surprised to find out some of the principles and implications or applications of sort of physics principles to politics. You know, if you view individuals in a political body as having mass and therefore gravity, then you could start looking at, it really kind of changes the way you look at social movements in a weird way. And so to refer to Washington, D.C. as a, as a black hole is probably not far off the mark. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of interrupted you when I, can you just tell a little bit more about the organization, like it, its size and like the activities that it's been doing? Sure. So, you know, just a little context for that. You know, I refer to the time between 96 and 2005 as kind of the wilderness years. There were people that wanted to see Texas become independent, but there was no cohesive sort of political movement that that was working actively to make it happen. There were a lot of fragmented small groups and, you know, just nothing real. And so prior to 2005, we engaged in a pretty intensive study, about a half a dozen of us, over looking at independence movements historically around the world, particularly with a focus on, say, the last 100 years, you know, looking at those movements, see who succeeded, who failed, looked at ones that were contemporary, that were still working on independence, and then taking all that data and really overlaying it on the things that were unique to Texas, you know, our election laws, our political structure, I mean, you know, a lot of different things uh, that were unique, and then coalescing it into what became the Texas Nationalist Movement. When we started the TNM, the issue of independence was polling in single digits. I mean, mm-hmm. there were some third-party polls, but they were just not really great. But it was at least a starting point for us. And, you know, we hold it as a mark of excellence that the issue of Texas or Texas independence, support for that is always polled higher than the approval rating of the United States Congress, which, you know, they, those guys typically poll somewhere right above or below leprosy. So it's not, not a high watermark, right? right? But, you know, since then, we've grown to become the single largest political advocacy organization in Texas outside of the two major political parties. You know, we have essentially worked to see two planks added to the Republican Party platform calling on a vote on Texas. We've had legislation filed in the last two sessions calling for a vote on Texas. We're, you know, organized statewide. I mean, we're serious business. And we're, oddly enough, we're working essentially broad strokes, the same plan that we launched the organization with in 2005. Well, great. So let me just follow up on a few things you mentioned there. So for one thing, when you say how you studied, you know, history to look at the success or failure of other movements, it's funny because there's one of the objections, and maybe later in this discussion, we'll get into some of the specific concerns people have, but one of the knee-jerk reactions is people think that, oh, a state leaving the Union, the only thing that could possibly have to do with is slavery and or a civil war, you know, yeah. and it's like, well, well no, it, there's other people around the world that break away from governments. That's not because of American plantation slavery, you know, so. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, look, Bob, one of the one of the things that, that really compelled me to think this way, because you have to remember, people don't come out of the womb wired for this sort of thing, right? 
it's not something that that they really teach you about. I mean, obviously here in Texas, we you know we have Texas history classes. There's always sort of that sense that Texas is something different, but there was never at the time really anywhere anyone talking about this issue. And I can remember reading a book called Global Paradox by John Nesbitt back in the mid '90s. And, you know, Nesbitt was famous for writing Megatrans, Megatrans 2000. You know, that was, he was sort of a pop geopolitical scientist, if you want to call it that, if such a thing exists. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a global paradox was interesting to me for a couple of reasons. You know, I picked it up because it was ostensibly about the coming telecommunications revolution technology. But really the thesis of his book that I think went missed by a lot of people was that he said that the world's trends point overwhelmingly toward economic interdependence on one hand and political independence on the other. And he cites a statistic in there. I may butcher it a bit, but it's, you know, it's still there. But he talks about how at the end of World War II, there were roughly 54 recognized fully sovereign countries around the world. And by the time of the book's publication, there were 192. And you think about that, those countries didn't fall from space. The earth didn't get any bigger. Mm -hmm. They were people who just wanted to reach out and reclaim their right of self-government. So, it always stuck with me almost as a byproduct of the other content in the book. So, you know, when we talk about my, my crossing the proverbial line in the sand in 1996, that was one of the things that, that really, I think, informed that decision. You look around the world at this idea of independence and self-government, it's happening everywhere. It's been happening for decades. It just seems that people over here in the States just for them, the world stopped spinning in 1865. Mm-hmm. Do you, I think you made a funny joke about it at the time. And folks, I apologize. My voice is just terrible, but we've got to plow through this. Someone on Twitter, it was a guy who recently at the Soho Forum had taken the position against secession. And so he tweeted out something. So it's the same thing, folks. Grain of salt. This isn't going to be exact quote, but this is the spirit of it. Something like the fans of secession, U.S. national divorce think that it's going to you know, reduce violence, but actually, I don't know, I'm doing some research to show why they're wrong. And then I came across this gem, and he showed this chart that showed, I forget what exactly it was measuring, but yeah. it was showing a reduction in violence. Again, the category may have been like, you know, people killed by soldiers or something like that, but it showed a drastic fall in violence after World War II. Sure. You know, in a steady one, not just obviously the world was safer in 48 than 43, duh, but it was a trend. And so then I went, and I was like, well, because I vaguely knew there were more countries. And so I went and just Googled it, and it was like the number of countries in 1950 was whatever, 140. And then, yeah, more recently, the, like the current number is like 191 or 192, something like that. So I said, okay, so by your own logic, the more secessions there have been, <laughs> you know, as, as people become more decentralized, violence has gone down. So how does that prove your point? Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so do you remember what I'm talking about, Daniel? Oh, you, I, I remember. You, you used some saying about like, Taking a number two and falling in her. Oh, yeah. There's that one, or, you know, the guy crapped his sheets or whatever. I mean, you know, I try to put it in the most Texan terms possible, which would probably be difficult for him to understand. But that's the point, though. You know, the people that are opposed to this have a very narrow view of the world, right? For every one of those people that come out and say that, I say, okay, well, explain to me then how the partitioning of Sudan solved 30 year civil war and put it to an end. You know, there are examples after examples about this. And I mean, let's be honest, anytime you find violence 
involved in the, these sorts of decentralized decentralizations, you know, independence movements or whatever, it's because one side won't talk to the other and wants to utilize force to suppress the other side, right? You had you do have freedom fighters, right? You have that, but understand that freedom fighters would never have to take up arms if the other side would recognize a right of self-government. And from that, you know, we're excluding the, you know, the absolute despotisms and tyrannies, right? We're talking about sort of modern day independence. But more often than not, it's violence used by the state to to essentially rob people of their right of self-government and self-determination. But those instances are not rare and not typical to sort of the Western world. So by and large, when we talk about these issues, like, you know, Texas in particular, you know, we're talking about a process that's well-recognized around the world that we've seen time and time again, where the people have a lengthy, fair, full, free debate. They go to the polls, they vote on their political future, and then they enact that political will. And it's something that we have seen time and time and time again. So going back to your historical survey, do you remember any like general principles that you walked away with that study with to, to say, oh, in, in general, what the people that succeeded, this is what they did, or the people that it didn't work, this is what they did. Do you remember any? Yeah, there was a lot. And even to this day, right, not even just during those two years, I'll even fast forward to 2014 to the Scottish Independence Referendum. One of the things that, that we knew from that two-year study is always referred to it as you have to keep the main thing the main thing, right? It has to be, if you're going to seek independence, it has to be about independence. You know, the work that you do has to be about those things related to independence, and it was a lesson that that the you know the Scottish National Party failed to recognize in 2014 during their referendum. They were rocking along at a pretty good clip. I mean, they did start behind the eight ball. I think they were polling at 30 percent when the time came to call for the referendum. But they were uniquely positioned. They had political power in Scotland through a political party whose kind of main issue was independence, and so they were. Poised and statistics have shown around the world that independence movements have a tendency to gain ground. Right? You, we don't have enough sort of modern day referendums to have a super solid set that we can couple with polling numbers. Right? There's some that are historical that we don't have polling data to couple it with, but it's pretty much a fact that independence movements outperform whatever the polling numbers are. And so Scotland had a path, even though they were well behind the starting line, they had a path to, to win the thing. And what they did was the Scottish National Party knuckled to pressure to paint a picture of what a post-independent Scotland would look like. You know, once they gained their independence, you know, people, I say this, people, to quote Dandy Don Meredith, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas, Right. People will, what if this thing to death? What about this? What if this? You know, they do that. But it really misses the point of what independence brings. So the Scottish government, headed by the Scottish National Party, knuckled to pressure, and they released what was called the Scottish Independence White Paper, which they touted. I mean, they rolled it out to big fanfare. This is the, you know, this document answers every question you could ever possibly have about Scottish independence. And what it turned out to be, because the Scottish National Party was in power, was it was pretty much just a rundown of every SNP plank in their manifesto. It was a policy document for the SNP. So they, so what happened was, in the independence debate shifted from should we pursue self-government to 
wow, should we be governed this way after independence? And so the S&P, by that act, made it about themselves. And in doing so, they robbed everyone of the biggest benefits of independence, which is we get to actually debate things and come up with policies that we've never had an opportunity to do before without somebody else sitting at the table, you know, buffering us on all sides to make certain decisions that they want us to make. And so coincidentally, or not coincidentally, the independence referendum support came in, I think, 47%, which is roughly the same percentage that the S&P won by in the previous general election. So, you know, that's that was just one lesson about, look, you got to keep the main thing the main thing. You start haggling on individual independent policies pre-independence, you're giving people a reason to not support independence, right? In an independence movement, which was shown, uh, you know, all of these independence movements, you have to give people a reason to support independence. And that reason has to be the fact that independence gives you, for the first time, the ability to control your own destiny. Okay, yeah, that's that's very interesting. So, and I guess, yeah, because almost by definition, some people are going to, people are going to disagree about what to do once you're independent. Right. And so if you start saying, like you're almost linking, you're saying we're going to be independent and do X, Y, Z. Well, then obviously you're cutting your support off because some people are going to support X, Y, Z. Sure. It becomes a referendum on X, Y, Z instead of independence. And look, the way that I put it to people is this to help them understand. I mean, you know, you take Texas as a good example of this. You know, Texas overpays about 130 to $160 billion annually into the federal system, right? That's year on year. That's the average, but it's an overpayment. You look at the, like that study that came out of George Mason University where they talk about the effects of federal regulatory accumulation and it's average 2% compression of GDP annually. You know, you look at the fact that because of our relationship with the federal government, a couple of sessions back, we did a study and found that 41% of all bills filed actually referenced a federal law, federal regulation, federal agency, federal court case. You know, so you start looking at all that. Then you look at the impact of money from outside of Texas that flows into Texas elections, you know, from PACs and individuals to the tune of, I mean, massive, massive millions upon millions of dollars in every cycle. And realize that all of those things are part of the debate, right? You could go right now, tune into the live stream of the Texas legislature, listen to debate on the floor, and hear them at some point talk about, well, you know, what is the federal government going to do about this? What does federal law say about this? Suddenly, take all of that away, right? What are the implications for us as Texans who, for the first time, will be able to actually debate issues and come up with Texas solutions for Texas challenges? That's not something you can actually quantify. You know, no one mm-hmm. can paint what a post-exit future will look like because, frankly, the people have never had proper debate, proper discussion on these issues, and been able to properly make a decision about how to form those policies. That's what independence does for us. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm even just thinking of analogies like with people, you know, if, if somebody's 25 years old and, well, actually, like, like Britney Spears when she was petitioning to get the guardianship or whatever the term was or conservatorship removed. I mean, yeah, it's not so much, I don't know legally in that specific, but I'm just saying you're asking me ethically, what do I think? I would certainly would not say, well, let me go ask the person who's 25 years old, what are you going to do with your life to see if they should have the right to lead their own life? It would be more, you know, maybe asking the doctor, like, are they competent and things like that? You know, assuming that they're a normally functioning human, it doesn't matter what choices they make. It's the point is it's their life. They get to do it. And so exactly. 
And yeah. this is the first time I've ever heard Texas compared to Britney Spears. So kudos <laughs> to you, sir. <laughs> yeah, I like to innovate here on the Bob Murphy uh-huh. show. So you, just in terms of current events, you you alluded to in the beginning that there were two recent bills introduced. Did I hear that right? Yeah. So last session, there was House Bill 1359, which Texas Independence Referendum Act. And then, you know, this session was House Bill 3596, which was essentially 1359 with mm-hmm. corrected ballot language. And so, you know, I mean, those are milestones that people said would never happen, right? We came pretty close three times before that to getting the referendum bill filed. And, you know, each time we were stymied, it's, you know, politics. It's the so way that it just, works. Can I stop you, Dan? Just for sure. You're, you're hip deep in this stuff. So for other people, though, yeah. the referendum has never happened yet? No, 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 we haven't. And, you mm-hmm. know, trust and believe, when Texas gets to go to the polls and vote on the question, should the state of Texas reassert its status as an independent nation, everyone is going to know about it. I mean, right. it, imagine how earth-shattering it will be. Well, that's what I'm saying, though. But yeah. on the one hand, it's almost a story in and of itself that you would think, well, yeah, sure, why don't they have a referendum? And, you know, if it's a bad idea, it'll get blown out of the water. But it, your well, point exactly. is you're fighting just to let people say whether they want to do it or not. Yeah, and that's the thing about it. You know, you have to look at this almost in, in two two separate stages, right? There is the everything that has to be done to get the vote, and then there's everything that has to be done to win the vote. And so when you're looking at, and this is the way I refer to it, when you're looking at the Texit process along, along this continuum, right, people say Texit will never happen. What they don't realize is that when you study these movements around the world, according to kind of the way their process goes, it already started. It started the moment that we founded an organization to explicitly pursue this and began to gain ground, right? So you could say the Texas process started in 2005, but the peak of that gets to that that middle point, that next massive goalpost is getting Texans to vote on the issue. Because all discussions about Texas are academic until we get a vote and then you know we can have the conversations with the sort of gravity that, that having a vote at the end of that tunnel brings, okay? So we have to remember, and for those who don't know, here in Texas, none of the states really have a mechanism for doing this. And some people who don't understand the Constitution or the Union or states, they will say, well, that tells you that it can't be done. Well, that's not the case at all. Every state had an ultimate right to decide which process they use. Here in Texas, we have Article One, Section 2, in our Texas Constitution that says that the people have at all times the inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their government in such manner as they may think expedient. So, you know, that's the, you know, that's the thing about it. We have to determine the process. But what that also says, because the very first words of that is all political powers inherent in the people, ultimately that means for us it must be a referendum. Texas entered the union via referendum. If we're going to be out, then we have to have the referendum. That being said, for that to happen, we have to have some mechanism in law here in Texas to enable that vote. And that's what the bill that we propose, the Texas Independence Referendum Act does, is it literally just puts the vote to the people. So whether we're for or against Texas, you know, anyone out there, we're obviously pro-Texas, and we're willing to argue that all day, the pros and cons. But whether anyone is for it, against it, or undecided, at a minimum, they should agree that we should be able to have a vote on the issue. Just out of curiosity, these 
reference, what would they, what would it actually say? Or if it was one that you preferred, like, does it say, because it would be hard to just like do everything next Tuesday. Well, so and it's it, not does supposed it, to be. Does it give like a timetable or how does it? No. So the, what the legislation does, so the, there are two, really two components that, that we have to contend with. Number one is the actual vote, which includes the ballot question, right? And so one of the things that is pretty clear, particularly in, in a lot of the more modern thought about independence referendums, you have to be very careful about the referendum language. In other words, what goes on the ballot? You know, we've seen bodies of academic work, people wringing their hands from an international law perspective about how much the question on the ballot matters. And oddly enough, the two areas, well, three really, where we've seen a lot of study about this were Quebec for their two major referendums, obviously the Scottish Independence referendum, and then the Brexit referendum. Lots of discussion about that. So our language that we want on the ballot that has been it's been vetted, I think it's perfect, is should the state of Texas reassert its status as an independent nation? It covers all the boxes. It meets all the criteria to be a fair referendum, to, to be able, a fair question to put to the people. It's not convoluted. Because at that point, there's no sense in having any discussion about what comes after that until you have an expression of political will, right? So, you have to ascertain the political will of the people for them to you know, determine which direction they're going to move forward. Are we going to stay as it is? We're going to do something different. And then our legislation in particular creates a joint legislative committee to begin to lay out the four aspects of that vote if it comes back in the affirmative. Constitutional issues, statutory issues, international covenants, treaties and agreements, and finally the negotiated issues with the federal government. Well, I love the simplicity of that. I guess that kind of goes back to your earlier lesson from history is just focus on the issue that if you start laying on a timetable, like should Texas, you know, fully regain its sovereignty in, you know, the three fortnights from now, like then <laughs> people are going to be arguing about the details and not the question of should we do this or not. Right. And that's the thing about it. You know, you have to, again, you know, it's about keeping the main thing, the main thing, but it's really a process thing. You have to ascertain the political will. And then you want to give yourself a maximum amount of flexibility on how to carry that out at the tail end of it. You know, the ability from a legislative perspective to be able to either expand or contract the timeline as you can. You look at some of these issues like constitutional issues. There are gaps in the state constitution right now where a self-governing independent nation would have to, you know, they would have functions that they would have to do, right? Because by virtue of our relationship with the union, there is no provision in the Constitution for us to engage in, in foreign affairs. But we understand that that is a right of every self-governing independent nation. Well, we need to constitutionally enable that, right? We need to amend our Constitution to make that happen. You know, if we need to do like simple cleanups, like changing the title of governor to president and, you know, lieutenant governor to vice president, you know, whatever sort of cleanups we need to do there can be done. <clears throat> via constitutional amendment. So, but again, there is no motivation to do those things. There is no inclination to do them until you have an expression of political will. And for those out there who say, why can't we just go do that legislation now? I would suggest to them that particularly for those Texas supporters out there or people who want to support the independence of their state is you want the people involved in this. You want a referendum. And here's why. The average voter turnout for independence referendums around the world is about 
Okay. So imagine for a moment in your state and, and Texas in particular, if all of a sudden, all of these people that have been sitting on the sidelines who have essentially been disenfranchised from the political system because they don't believe that there's any way of changing it and are sick and tired of being ground to powder by the federal government or the state government or the county government or the local government. Imagine for a moment if you pull those people off of the bench and you give them a say. You know, here in Texas, for us, here's what that equates to. We have 17 million registered voters here in Texas. We know that the latest polling that we had, the Survey USA poll from last summer showed 60, 60% of Texas voters and 66% of likely voters would vote yes on Texas if it goes on a ballot. So what that means is, is that for that referendum, you're going to push somewhere between about somewhere between eight and a half to nine and a quarter million pro-Texit voters into the polls. And that is more voters than all votes cast for every gubernatorial candidate in the last governor's election. It effectively gives you an opportunity to not only reclaim your right of self-government, but it also gives you the voting power necessary to carry it out if you have some recalcitrant politicians that are sitting in Austin that didn't get the message when that many voters said, yes, we want self-government. And and precisely because of that, I would think if I were part of the establishment, however you want to define that, I would make sure that that referendum never comes up. (laughs) Well, that's their plan. I mean, see, because if you think about it, Bob, here's the interesting thing about their rhetoric. It's this. They use this as an excuse. I mean, other than the nonsense of this is treason, this is sedition, Texas versus white, you know, all the kind of stuff that we shoot down, that what they use as their fallback is this. They say that no one believes in this, right? Even though polling has consistently shown, I mean, you don't get two planks on the Republican platform, the Republican Party platform of Texas without having significant political support on the ground. I mean, just you're just not going to get it done. But, you know, the polling numbers are solid, right? So, They say that no one believes in this and that it's stupid to even have this conversation. And our comeback is always, okay, put it on a ballot and let's prove it. You know, if they are right, they can put it on a ballot and, you know, shut us down for a generation, right? But if they're wrong, then we've been right all along and it snaps their backs, right? It breaks their backs. And so the most telltale sign that this issue is a thing, is that logical ridiculousness, illogical ridiculousness coming out of the political establishment. If they wanted to kill the issue, all they have to do is put it on a ballot if they indeed believe what they say they believe. So obviously you can't control the future, but if you had to guess, when do you think it's going to end up on the ballot? Well, you know, we would have loved to have had it if the Texas Independence Referendum Act passes in a legislative session. The legislation calls for it to be put on the November constitutional amendment election, right? Even though it's not a constitutional amendment, we did that to make it revenue neutral. It costs nothing to ask the question. So, you know, that's where we're at. We're heading into the waning days of the Texas legislative session. We're at a point now where I don't know that that we're going to make it happen this session. But there are other ways for us to go out there and build that pressure. We build enough political pressure, we could get a special session, you know, we could somehow get this expedited in this session, or, you know, we place the question on a primary ballot, which we have the ability to do here in Texas by petition, 
We put it on a primary ballot in March with a whole slate of pro-Texas candidates, and then we have no problems in the next legislative session getting it to sail through. So there are numerous paths to make this happen. And, you know, one of the things we said is if it doesn't go down in 23, then it'll go down in 25. And that was something that was recently confirmed. A gentleman named Dr. Matt Quartrope, he's a professor at Coventry University in the UK. He is probably the world's foremost expert on independence referendums. I interviewed him on my live stream sometime recently, and he said, look, it's going to happen within the next 10 years. He says, Texit is going to happen in the next 10 years. And so, I mean, that was pretty solid based on his assessment of where we are. He was starting a little bit behind the starting line. We had already done some things he didn't realize. But look, 2023, 2024, 2025, those things are all up for grabs. And I mean, we're that close, Bob. Okay, well, cool. That's exciting. Can you give us a sense just within Texas, like state-level politics, how, is it just Republicans that are for it, or is it not a party thing, or how does that work? Well, it, it's interesting. If you separate leadership from the people, okay, so that that is, I think, a key component here. The electeds in Austin are not necessarily representative of the party whose jersey they wear, and that's that's become very apparent over the you know the last several years. But when you look at the breakdowns, like the Survey USA poll, well, look, I'll even roll it back, twenty fourteen. There was a Reuters-Ipsos poll, and they broke it down by partisan affiliation. And that was the first time that we saw a majority of Republican voters in support of Texas becoming its own country. But the earth-shattering thing there should have been, I mean, that was no, no surprise. I mean, it's just not, it wasn't a shocker. But what really should have rattled everyone was the fact that it was like 48% of independent voters and 35% of Democrats. I mean, that should have shook them to their core. You go to the Survey USA poll, and now we're majorities in both independent voters and Democrats. Even with Democrats edging out independents by a couple of percentage points, you know it's always by virtue of sort of the politics and the culture and everything else here in Texas. It's always going to wind up being skewed a little more heavily to the Republican side, just based off of voting patterns and things of that nature. But it shocks people to know that this issue is such a nonpartisan issue. You know, Republicans, Democrats, independents, libertarians, everyone can agree their relationship with the federal government is broken. They can agree that there is no fixing the federal government. And so when presented with an option for Texas to, you know, reclaim its control, they'll vote for Texas 10 times out of 10, as opposed to those two and a half million unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. Sure, it breaks a little more heavily Republican, but it's totally Mm -hmm. understandable why. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing, too, that's interesting is a lot of times for the kind of policies that people like me and I believe, you know, people like you want, it, it like reduces the power of the bureaucrats. And, you know, and so that's why they would be against it. But in this case, the governor, would you rather be the governor of a big state or the president of a country that's like in the top 10 on planet Earth? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, and so I would think, now I know like, you know, if there were new elections once Texas is its own country that, you know, maybe the same people don't come in, but still, like, did you get my, my point that, like, sure. even just purely in terms of power-hungry or just wanting to be in the history books, if you were, you know, in a senator from Texas when the switch happened, you would certainly be more famous to have a bigger legacy than if you killed it and just, you know, got some more pork for your constituents or whatever the heck you're going to do as a regular senator. 
Right. Yeah, you know, it's sort of an interesting conundrum for, I think, some of these guys in the political establishment. But I alluded to some of this earlier, uh, particularly in relation to campaign finance, you know, that campaign money that's flowing in. But, you know, this issue changes the landscape, the political landscape like no other, right? Sure, you know, obviously, you know, we have Texas. Elections continue to happen. You know, we're still on that every two-year cycle. The law is the law until it's not the law, right? And it will change the face of everything. I mean, a lot of the problems that we have here, and I think this applies to every state, is you've got political careerists going into state office and treating it like a AAA ball club because they want something federal, right? I mean, that happens more often than not. You know, one of the speculate, I mean, Greg Abbott has been, who's our governor here, has been running for president ever since he was a judge. I mean, he's just like at the very start, that's been his idea. Well, all of a sudden now, there's none of that, none of that, right? Texas is, is the highest office you get. Now, it is a self-governing independent nation, but it also becomes devoid of all that graft and corruption that pours into Washington, D.C., and, and for a lot of people, money and power. And so... The only people that they can pander to, that they can play to, are the Texas people, right? There's no more playing to Iowa caucus voters or first-in-the-nation primary voters in New Hampshire or any of these things. It's about, you know, are you doing the right thing for Texas? And we're the only people that are going to be putting money into your campaign coffers. You only have to placate us because, you know, at the end of the day, you're not going to get any reinforcements from outside of Texas. You have to govern the best you can for the nation of Texas. And that changes a lot of the calculus. Probably one of the reasons that a lot of these political, another reason a lot of these political establishment guys are not big fans of the Texas issue. They understand what it does to their power base. So, yeah. So I even, as I was asking you the question, I kind of answered it myself too. So basically the kind of people that would be the elites, the political establishment in the country of Texas are probably not identically the same ones that thrive in the current system. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to think about it. I mean, an elected official is like the character Peter Givens from Office Space, right? When he's talking to the two consultants, the two Bobs, mm-hmm. and he finally just admits to him, look, I just do enough not to get fired. That's pretty much what they're shooting for. These guys are shooting for a C minus. They're okay with that. But it helps them to have the federal government as a scapegoat. That One of the biggest issues, biggest concerns here in Texas for Texas voters for the last 15 years has been uh, the border and immigration, right? You combine the polling numbers for those two issues, it is the, those the number one concern for Texas voters. And so, you know, you've had no real substantive action, nothing super impactful until as of late. And... The reason being is that they want to be able to placate a certain demographic of voters. They want to be able to do just enough to not get fired. And the perfect scapegoat for that is the federal government, when frankly, the state of Texas has had the power to secure its own border in its own hands for a very long time. Some say that they you know, might be worried about forcing a constitutional crisis, but if it's an invasion and a crisis, as they say it is, the power is in their hands. Instead, they get, they'll scapegoat the federal government and send out more campaign mailers. That We get to eliminate that from the equation. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to answer the question, who, is, who are the best people to govern Texas? Is it Texans 
where is it? Two and a half million unelected bureaucrats in Washington, federal bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. You know, the House of Reprehensibles, you know, a president potato head or a bunch of unaccountable, unelected federal judges. Who is best? And, you know, you put that question to the people of Texas, they're going to they're going to pick themselves. No doubt about it. Yeah, it was great stuff. Let me, let's see, where did it go? I just lost it. Okay, here it is. So let me just grab something from your book here. Sure. So one of the things, and you alluded to it, even in the, in the um, referendum language that you preferred, that, you know, to say reassert, mm-hmm. because it's, you know, drawing on the fact that it used to be an independent nation. And um, I like you, had, you said that the Texas Declaration of Independence from Mexico. So in other words, this isn't, your guys' first rodeo, excuse the horrible pun. And so let me just read a little bit of this. And again, folks, sorry about my voice here. But so this is the Texas Declaration of Independence from Mexico saying, we appeal to our Mexican brethren for assistance. Our appeal has been made in vain. Though months have elapsed, no sympathetic response has yet been heard from the interior, interior with a capital I. We are therefore forced to the melancholy conclusion that the Mexican people have acquiesced in the destruction of their liberty and the substitution, therefore, of a military government that they're unfit to be free and incapable of self-government. And I was reading, it's like, oh, that kind of sounds like today. (laughs) And so, again, that, you know, yes, if everybody in the United States had been militantly, you know, pro-liberty and really keeping those politicians, scoundrels in Washington accountable, it wouldn't have come to this. And, And yet, just like the people of Texas were saying back then, the people in Mexico are they're okay living like this under this government. Well, we're not. So that's why we got to leave. That's kind of what you're saying now. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, at the end of the day, no matter what we do, and I tell people this to put it in terms, it's like if here in Texas, 100%, you know, let's say that we have an issue that we want to address. If 100% of the people here in Texas agree on the solution for that, right? 100%. I mean, you know, think about how weird that is. You think about that 100%. Chip Roy and Sheila Jackson Lee on the same page, right? You put that together and 100% agree. And we say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We have to understand that it could be immediately as a result of this situation overridden by the U.S. Congress, the Supreme Court, or pretty much any federal judge, or an executive order out of the president you know, somewhere in that regulatory state, 100% of the people of Texas could be overridden at the stroke of a pen by virtue of the fact of, you know, having people that we didn't elect forcing policies on us that we don't want. Texans asked for a sign in the midterms and said, you know, show us that you guys care about a constitutional republic. Show us that you care about inalienable rights. And what did Pennsylvania send us? Well, they sent us John Fetterman. You get sort of, you know, more of the same. You know, you get Mitt Romney calling himself a Republican. You, I mean, you. these are the things that happen. So I think that for people, they have maybe a difficult time thinking about how we can still work together, how we could still be kind of, you know, friends in the absence of the federal system. And my position on it is really two things. Number one is there is no monolithic America. It doesn't exist. America is a set of principles and values, and it has its own expressions in various states. But the United States is a political, cultural, uh, a political and economic institution that is run by a federal government that has become antithetical to those principles that we think of as America. So, in that sense, 
we have to look at the United States of America as an institution kind of in that vein and say, is it doing its job? Is it fit for purpose? And the answer is no. No no one will answer. Yeah, I mean, some people will try to answer yes, but it's a terrible position to take because it's indefensible. But the people themselves are beginning to make their decisions about which worldview they want to pursue. And I think anyone would be hard-pressed to say that America has sort of a single worldview. That being said, we don't have to be governed under one institution. Let California be California. Let Texas be Texas. Let New York be New York. Let Pennsylvania be Pennsylvania. You know, let's let that happen. And then we can trade with one another. We can engage in mutual defense with one another. We can travel between one another. We can do those things. But we do that without surrendering our sovereignty to a broken institution in Washington, D.C. that essentially hates any concept of who we are as a people and hates our worldview. Very well put. Let me, let's jump into the fun stuff. Let's, uh, hey, let's, Bob, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm filibustering. No, no, no. Uh, but I'm trying to save your voice. No, uh, I'm, I did. That, I'm doing that you is, solid, man. <laughs> no, you, you are. No, and I knew when I was in the car and I was trying to talk, I was like, oh man, it's going to ruin the end. And I said, no, no, it's because Daniel's not afraid. He's not afraid to talk. Okay. Let's, uh, you, so you talk about the project fear in capital mm. letters and how, you know, people know that that's the way to kill these kind of movements just to scare everybody. They did it with Brexit and, you know, Scotland and so on. And that's, and so you had three broad categories, you know, in quotation marks for each statement. Texit is illegal. They won't let us and Texit is too hard. So why don't we, just hit those in turn if you don't mind. So starting out with Texas is illegal. So what, what do you say to that? Like, uh, that's, that's just criminal, Daniel. I mean, you just can't do that. Well, you know, that's always the fun one. You know, I had I wrote an entire section of the book on that. And I'll tell you, my real life comeback is, okay, cool. Show me the law. For something to be illegal, there has to be a law against it. Show me the law. Point to me, you know, when they say it's unconstitutional, point to the point to where it says in the Constitution, the state can't do this. When they say that, you know, well, it's against federal law, I say, okay, well, point to the law. I mean, it's available. Google it. Show me the law. They can't. Okay, well, look at Texas law. Look at the Texas Constitution. In fact, the Texas Constitution upholds our right of self-government and self-determination. So, you know, when they talk about Texas being criminal and illegal, those things wither under any scrutiny whatsoever. I mean, it's why they're literally some of the weakest arguments. The only fallback they ever have is they go back to that stupid Supreme Court case of Texas versus White. 99.99% of the people who invoke it have never read it. They don't understand anything about it. And apparently their calendar stopped at the moment that that Supreme Court decision was ruled. So they don't understand. There were subsequent Supreme Court decisions and actions taken by the federal government that render Texas v. White null and void. So, you know, the bottom line is, is that none of those arguments that they make about it being illegal and constitutional, none of them hold up to any significant scrutiny whatsoever. And most of them are easily dismissed by just a simple statement of show me the law. And, you know, even if they couldn't produce a law, it wouldn't matter because, you know, and this, and I learned this too, and doing the research from my pamphlet on Texas independence, it's like you say that in the, you know, you go to even... You don't have to be a, legal, a historian. Just go look at the Wikipedia entry on Texas, you know, joining the union. And it's pretty clear that, oh, well, this happened. And then they said this, and they had to have this document and the people voted on it. And they said, well, you need to have a constitution if you want to join the union. So here it is. And it got ratified and blah, blah, blah. And right in the constitution of Texas, that was part of the whole process to join the union. Like you said, 
it says right in there that the people reserve the power to do that. If they don't like their government, they can dissolve it. Yeah, so I mean, under any, like even not putting aside morality and what, what feels right to you, just know, <laughs> just buy the book in terms of the law. Like clearly when they, when Texas came in, that was the, the condition that they said. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, and I fast forward, I, I always refer to the opposition as being stuck in the past. I mean, you know, they talk about us wanting to roll the clock back. They're the ones who want to roll the clock back. You look at that explosion of nation states around the world over the last 75 years and understand that the United States federal government was one of the biggest champions of self-determination and self-government. You know, you take uh, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, right? Supreme Court case that dealt with whether or not a state could force vaccinations. But one of the one of the takeaways, like the clearest takeaway from that case was, is that the federal government can derive no powers from the preamble of the Constitution that are not explicit in the document. Well, that was the entire argument that Chase made in Texas v. White. Then you get up to things like Missouri v. Holland. and you Can, know, can you explain Texas v. White? Because I'm sure many people I, don't know. Bob, there is nothing I love more <laughs> than taking Salmon P. Chase to the woodshed. Okay. So, you know, without getting into all the nitty-gritty of the case, it was essentially a post-Civil War case that was taking place during Reconstruction that actually dealt with bonds that were issued by the Confederate government of Texas during the war to pay for war supplies. The Reconstruction government wanted to claw that money back because they said that they didn't, the Constitution government was illegal, the Confederate government was illegal and therefore didn't have the right to issue the bonds. And basically what they wanted to do was steal money from people that had already gotten the bonds, right? They were using it to pay for war supplies, things of that nature. So the thing goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And, you know, rather than dealing with the issue of the bonds, Salmon P. Chase, who had been Secretary of the Treasury under Lincoln and was appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, oddly enough, Salmon P. Chase would have been the person responsible for cashing the bonds for the people who turned them in when he was Secretary of the Treasury. But ultimately, what it became was... Texas v. White became a vehicle for essentially a justification for the use of force during the Civil War by the federal government. Okay, That was what it really turned out to be. And so in, in his majority opinion, this is his logic, Okay, and steal yourself for this. He says that the Articles of Confederation said that 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 union was a perpetual union. We know that the Articles of Confederation was replaced with a union that was created by the Constitution, you know, that Constitution of 1787. And it doesn't have that phrase, perpetual union, in there anywhere. But in the preamble, it, it says to form a more perfect union. So his assertion was that the Constitution was merely an amending instrument for the Articles of Confederation, and because the article said perpetual union and the preamble said to form a more perfect union, I guess making it what more perpetual. I mean, you know, I don't, don't know how he explains that one away, that therefore states could not unilaterally withdraw from the union. They can't leave the union, right? He refers to it as an indestructible union comprised of indestructible states. Well, the first thing that's funny about that statement is number one, somebody needs to explain West Virginia to me. Because if, if the union's indestructible and it's comprised of indestructible states, then West Virginia, there's a question there about that. But more importantly, and this is where I think it gets interesting, 
He says it's an indestructible union comprised of indestructible states, but then he goes on to describe two ways that states can withdraw from the union. Number one is revolution, and number two is consent of the states. So he's there is a, an internal inconsistency with his statements. He uses what is essentially a faulty legal reasoning to arrive at it that somehow says that the Articles of Confederation are in effect. And so he slams the gavel down, and that's it. And I think an interesting read is probably Justice Greer, his dissent on that case, but also some of the remarks that people made from the North about the decision. They looked at it as some of the biggest judicial activism, legislating from the bench, that you could possibly imagine. You know, maybe they agreed with the idea and the sentiment that he of what he was trying to do, but they rightly viewed it as a usurpation of a political question. And it gets to the heart of how all of this should be viewed. The political status of a state in the union is just like any other people around there. It is a political question. It is not a judicial question. It can't be adjudicated in a court of law. It is ultimately a political question. So that's why when you look at Missouri v. Holland that I mentioned a moment ago, that it effectively overturns Texas v. White because it says that the federal government can derive no powers, which that means the power to do things or prevent things, prohibit them, from the preamble alone. It has to be explicit in the Constitution. And so we know that that post-Civil War, post-Texas versus White, there was the, you know, they, the Congress had every, every opportunity and probably had the willpower to prevent it via law, to actually pass a law and say, you know, you can't do it. They had all they needed to pass a constitutional amendment because they had established new reconstruction governments in all those states, so they could have passed a constitutional amendment, but they didn't choose to do that. So consequently, what you have here is you have Jacobson v. Massachusetts that destroys the pillar on which Texas v. White stands on. Well, then you fast forward to, like I said, Missouri v. Holland, which is that it was a case over a migratory bird treaty, which seemingly has nothing to do with it, but it's the case that is most often cited that shows that treaty law holds the same weight as constitutional law. Well, irony of ironies, because I'm not a fan of the United Nations as an institution, the moment that the United States signed the treaty to join the UN, they signed the charter as a treaty, and the moment they passed it, they explicitly acknowledged the right of self-determination and agreed to uphold it. So they're treaty bound to do it, which makes it right up there. So, I mean, that, you know, then you get into the last 75 years or 80 years of history where they sent our grandfathers and grandmothers and our fathers and mothers and, you know, some of the people that are in our age group and our sons and daughters to go off and fight, bleed, and potentially die for the right of self-determination for other people. So when they talk about people say that Texas is, you know, illegal or unconstitutional, they just simply don't know what they're talking about. They're out of arguments. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I agree. Okay, well, then what about they won't let us, right? So that's the second category of objection. So, oh, yeah, sure, it's a good idea. We'd love it. But you know what? The powers that be, they're not going to let us get away with this. They'll, they'll punish us more. So sort of like the Israelites telling Moses, just, Keep you know, keep your mouth shut. We're going to get more burdens heaped on us if you keep talking like that. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's always interesting. You know, when I go out and speak, I do a Q and A at the end of, of every speech if there's an opportunity to do it. And invariably, there's someone in there. You know, that they love to what if. You know, they uh, particularly around the federal government. What if they send in the military? What if they economically sanction us? What if you know they they 
insert my previous Dandy Don Meredith quote here. The bottom line is, is that you have to walk people through those scenarios. Okay, look, explain to me what that looks like, right? Because you have to remember, what are we pursuing here? Free, fair, full debate, open for everyone. We go to the polls, we vote, Texans decide to leave, you know, by a clear majority. What does that look like? They won't let us leave. So what are they going to do? Are they going to militarily invade us? Well, this isn't 1861, right? That's not how it's done. Plus, I mean, think about the impracticality of it. I mean, you know, think about it from an international perspective where they've got, you know, 70 plus years of foreign policy forcing the issue of self-determination for other people. How is that going to look if the only crime that the people of Texas committed was voting wrong and they decide they're going to fly over and bomb all the Walmarts in Houston? I mean, you know, I mean, what does that look like, right? And so, you know, what you find is, is that if our side of the equation follows this purposeful, conscious, sort of thoughtful process in making this happen, you don't leave any room for them to do that. People talk about economic sanctions, but what they fail to realize, look, Texas is the ninth largest economy in the world. Absent the federal government, we would probably be the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. And there's some argument out there that, you know, some dollar adjustment, some report that I read the other day, there's some argument out there that we may be the fifth or sixth right now. But the point here is that you look at all the advantages, all the cards that we hold, and you know, Bob, I mean, this is your field, right? You know economies despise, dis, they despise absolute chaos. I mean, you know, you want to see an economy tank, you throw it in absolute chaos. Well, the fun part about that is none of us on this side are talking about that. We're talking about a conscious withdrawal process that, that we're working together at, at every step of the way. If the federal government were to impose economic sanctions on us simply for voting wrong, you know, that's something that you have to, in a global economy, you have to justify it to the rest of the world. Why are you going to impose economic sanctions? Second thing to remember is, is that ultimately they need a good deal for Texas after the withdrawal. They need a good deal with us because of what we do here. You know, whether it's the energy sector, the tech sector, any of those sectors, ag, they need a good deal with us. We can't forget that I think it was during the seven, seven of Obama's eight years as president, I think we were the only state that actually created jobs. I mean, it was like, I think it was seven of those eight years. Texas was not just the number one job job creator out of all the states. We were about the only one creating jobs. And had it not been for Texas, it would have been in the, you know, the numbers would have been in the toilet. So any economic sanctions against Texas are really going to have a, a much worse blowback effect on the federal government because everyone will suffer. So, you know, it's, it really is ultimately about pragmatism, right? We have to look at it from the standpoint of what's going to cause the least amount of disruption. So whether it's, you know, they're not going to let us, I would like to see a plausible scenario. And I say plausible because I've heard some really outlandish nonsense, but I want to see a plausible scenario in the real world that that would spell that out, that they, that it would not have a significantly negative impact on the United States federal government than just letting us, respecting the vote of the people of Texas, and then working together to ensure that it is implemented in a way that, that benefits everyone. Yeah, I mean, you're, that's exactly the analysis that I, I made in my pamphlet on this stuff that really, especially too, like with everyone's smartphones or something, is it really, there's just going to be 
I don't mean to be graphic, but can you imagine people on their phones like taking pictures of bodies of kids in Dallas because the people of Texas thought that Thomas Jefferson was serious? You, you know, well, uh, it's, no, it's look, you're not being graphic. I mean, look, Bob, what, what you're saying is, is a legitimate way to look at it. I mean, you have to understand, and this is why I put the Project Fear thing in the book, the opposition, because if you think about it, they have no firm footing to oppose this. And we'll probably get to that at the tail end of this. They have no firm footing to oppose this, so they go to these outlandish kind of claims. What are you going to do when China invades? Well, we're going to repel them, and I'm pretty sure the United States government won't sit back on their haunches and go, well, because you're not part of us, we will totally tolerate a PLA, PLA base right on the other side of the Red River. And of course not. That's not how the world works. They are devoid of any real arguments against it. So they fall back on this apocalypse porn, you know, related to these issues. And it's like, guys, just, you know, get, give it up. <laughs> just stop. Right. And I think the way, the, for me, like the way to reassure myself that my instinct was correct, it was, with the Brexit thing, there were warnings that, oh, there's going to be sanctions on you guys to put tariffs, but nobody said they're going to launch cruise missiles into London if you guys right. vote wrong. Like that just would, and if they did, the rest of the world would have said, are you guys out of your mind? You can't do that to them. Sure. So, I mean, there's that element as well. And I know some people think we're being naive, but I think, no, it, they really, but it, it would have to be peaceful. Like, like you say, going through a process and it would have to be a big, you know, overwhelming majority. Like it couldn't be like a, it was so razor thin to give the, you know, the union, the pretext to say, no, no, we were sending inspectors to count the ballots and blah, 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 you know, that kind sure. of stuff. I mean, look, the, the threshold is always going to be 50% plus one, right? I mean, we're not, we're not in Canada, you know, where they set the Canadian Supreme Court set a arbitrary 55%, but it, look, it needs to be clear. I mean, you know, we need to have very, it needs to be a very clear expression of the will of the people of Texas. And so, look, I, I'm not in favor of legal requirements for supermajorities on self-determination questions because sometimes you don't, you know, sometimes those are used as hurdles to suppress the right of self-determination or self-government. But I am from a political standpoint and a practical and the practicality of this matter, I want to make sure that we're well north of that 55% number. Polling shows that we are, and, and that's great. But, you know, you, for us, it's got to be that peaceful political process because you want to take any opportunity for there to be any kind of craziness off the table. And look, ultimately, we can't control what they do in Washington, D.C. If they decide to make that choice after we vote for this, they make that choice and they will bear the consequences of it. And those consequences will not just be from us. It will be from other states in the union that view it as a you know an unconstitutional aggression. The world, you know, suddenly... The world will not just be sanctioning Iran and North Korea and Syria. They'll be sanctioning the United States as well because effectively the federal government will be doing what those regimes have done around the world as well. So, you know, it's just people, again, people that float that just don't get it. <laughs> yeah. And then the last major category you say is, oh, Texas too hard. So why don't we deal with some of these? So what would you do about military defense? You, you had a remark a few minutes ago saying, are you picturing the possibility of like, like joint defense agreements? Well, look, you know, there's, you have to look at it from the standpoint of what we already have and where would we want to get to, you know, sort of an average of what we see around the world and how wide or short that gap is. So, you know, you look at things like military defense, you understand that Texas already has a three branch military 
And, you know, we already have funding going to that. We already have a military, right? We're, we're not, it's not a problem for us. We're a major gun owning state. So national defense is one of those things that, that we can build out. We already have a framework to build off of. And I think that puts us ahead of the starting line, probably maybe more than some other states, particularly the Texas State Guard. But, you know, when we talk about that, there's always the question of, okay, practically, how do you do it? And then how do you deal with the funding issue? Well, we can fund it. That's not a problem. As I said, we're already overpaying, you know, $130, $160 billion annually in the federal system. You know, if we use the NATO floor of 2% for defense spending, 2% of GDP, I think we'd have, I think we're somewhere at the, the 11th largest or the 11th most well-funded military in the world. <clears throat> you know, there, there are a, a lot of factors practically that make it easy for us to engage in that, to go ahead and make a deep work. But you have to also understand <clears throat> Excuse me. You also have to understand that the priorities of a self-governing independent Texas from a defense, a national defense perspective, are probably going to be very different than those of a United States federal government. They want to project force around the world. They want to be the world's policemen. And here in Texas, we want to do something simple like, I don't know, secure our border, you know, things of that nature. Mm. So those defense priorities. The difference in defense priorities means that, you know, we'll be probably be spending that money a little bit differently. But to your other question, though, about mutual defense, you have to, from the standpoint of trying to assess the gap, you have to look at it as what is the most likely scenario to happen? Well, the most likely scenario to happen is we would probably wind up in a mutual defense agreement with the United States. The United States is already part of two, right? They're part of NATO. They're part of the IATA however effective that is. But, you know, the, they're not uncommon. You see these mutual defense agreements around the world via treaty. Sometimes they're bilateral treaties. Sometimes they're multilateral international organizations like NATO. But the bottom line is that's probably where it'll end up. You get engaged in these mutual defense compacts with other countries that share similar values and generally similar national defense concerns. And there's no doubt that Texas will still share some national defense concerns with the United States. Yeah, I think you and I are on the same page that to like people worried about China coming over and taking over Texas. They're like, do you know how hard that would be? You know, how many carriers they would need? And, you know, there's two oceans that Texas yeah. could access and the border with Mexico. Oh, it's so, crazy. People are like, you know, what are you going to do when China invades? It's like, well, first thing is Texans know how to pop a balloon. So let's start with that. We, <laughs> we got that one figured out. Yeah. Okay. Well, what about some practical issues like, uh, well, gee, I've been paying into Social Security my whole working career. So what happens if Texas leaves? Did I, I forfeit that? <laughs> no. That's, you know, oddly enough, that's one of the most asked questions that we get. And what we do is we just point them to current federal law, federal policy that essentially says, hey, look, if you're a federal pension benefit recipient, <clears throat> which covers a little more territory than just, you know, Social Security retirement benefits. But if you're a federal pension benefit recipient, you can collect your federal pension benefits even when you don't live in the United States. The exceptions, North Korea, Syria, Belarus, Iran. You know, countries that are under banking sanctions, you can't have that. But some people love to follow that up with, well, wait a minute. What if the federal government adds you to that list? Well, that has a whole bunch of other implications. Or if they decide they want to default on it, the average federal pension benefit payments into taxes every single year is about $74 billion, somewhere in that ballpark. 
And we have to remember we're already overpaying 103 to 160 billion dollars annually into the federal system. So we would have more than enough to cover those chips on the table because Texans are not going to let a grandma die in a ditch. That's not who we are. But that being said, anyone who is concerned about the Social Security issue, Texas is not your biggest concern where that is. It's actually the federal government. You know, when they're releasing reports and saying, you know, those, uh, the what is it, the OASI, old age survivor benefits, when that's going to be depleted in 2033, you better hope that you don't live past 2033. And frankly, for anyone paying into the Social Security system right now, pretty sure you're not going to be seeing a lot of that money, if any, from the federal side. So there is no federal solution on that. If you are a senior and you've paid into those federal pension benefits, the only hope that you have to be able to see those probably is going to be tax it. Yeah. And um, also, too, like it doesn't, for each individual household, this might not be the solution, but in terms of the aggregate, if Texas leaves and then they're not paying federal income tax, that's a whole bunch of money right there. Sure. I mean, you so, start circulating a lot of money through the economy just by you know removing the federal regulatory regime as it is. We've already got very clear models of how uh, what a transition system could look like you know, through the Galveston plan that people have talked about. So there are clear transition options there available for people. But the only way we get to exercise those things on a broad scale and statewide is to become an independent nation. Yeah, yeah. Let me just ask you this. Because my, my thinking is, if, let's say the referendum happens and they vote for it, I would imagine there would be millions of people around the country that now realize, oh, this is for real, and they would move to Texas. Because I think there's a lot of people that would love to live in an independent Texas. They just don't think it's going to happen. Bob, there are people moving to Texas now that are anticipating it happening and have been for years. Mm-hmm. You hear about, I mean, you look at a lot of that in-migration from the last census report. You know, a lot of people are moving in, and that's, that causes some hand-wringing among people here who don't understand sort of where the base demographic is for those people that are moving in. But that net in-migration from other states, are they're basically political, cultural, and economic refugees. And they're moving here in the anticipation that Texas is kind of the last stand for the ideas of freedom, liberty, and independence. And many of them are moving here fully with the anticipation that Texas independence is going to happen. So, you know, the interest of people is already there. It will ramp up when this goes on the ballot, even before the vote, right? The interest that those people, there will people that will pull up stakes, they will paint GTT on their front door, gone to Texas, and they will come here knowing that when this goes on a ballot, it wins. And it doesn't win by little, it wins by a lot. How do the rules for that work of somebody moving to Texas and then their legal ability to vote on a referendum like that? Voter registration. The referendum has to be conducted under the existing election laws. And so if you were eligible to vote in Texas, you were eligible to vote in this referendum. Okay, so plausibly then... Once people know it's going to be on the ballot, they could legally, you know, for people who their circumstances allow, they could move and then legally participate in that referendum. That is correct. Yeah. So I think, yeah, like you're saying, it's whatever the numbers are right now, it's certainly going to get bumped because there's going to be a lot of people that. A lot of uh, pro-Texit voters flying into the borders. Especially, you know, with now more and more people have the ability to work remotely. Like, you know, they, it's not that it's not as hard now to just pick up and move as it right. you know, would have been 30 years ago. So, and, and look, I think there will be, I think there will be some outbound people too that leave because 
they anticipate if it goes on a ballot, it wins. And yeah, you know, I hate that. I want people to be a part of what we do here, but if their worldview doesn't really align with the idea of self-government, then there are you know, plenty of opportunities for them to go elsewhere. But I, I think ultimately the end migration is going to be the big thing, and I think it's going to be a ton of pro-Texit people. Well, let me ask you, I just got two, two more questions for you if, if you've got time. So one is that, so other libertarians that are not, you know, they're not as enamored with, you know, the national divorce or whatever the language would be. And they're concerned. They say, you guys are being very naive. It's not that it's the big, bad federal government that's forcing tyranny down our throats. It's just, that's what people are like. And so if all these little separate, you know, things, pieces broke away, yeah, there might be some pro-liberty move things, but there would also be, you know, anti-liberty things depending on the culture, you know? So yeah, Californians, would really clamp down on business and whatever. But in Texas, there might be all kinds of restrictions socially and blah, 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 or whatever, or in Alabama. And so what's your take on that? Well, well, my take on that is just kind of to turn it around and say, how do you attempt to accomplish any of that? You know, how would you instill any sort of libertarian principles with a federal government that doesn't know liberty, right? I mean, you talk about, you know, people talk about you know, coming at this thing from a libertarian perspective, and they're against the idea of national divorce, which national divorce is a slogan, it's not a plan, but they're against, right. you know, a state withdrawing from the union. Since when did people who who believe in libertarian philosophy decide that it was okay to have an additional layer of government that you didn't need? Because you have to remember, if a state withdraws, you're removing an entire layer of government that you obviously don't need, right? There's no federal government anymore telling you to do all these things. So you have to look at it from that standpoint. Where are you going to be the most likely to accomplish your ideas? I mean, think about for a moment and go back to what I talked about on the independence vote. 85% voter turnout, right? So much of what we deal with in, in any of these states is because so many voters are disengaged. They have become disengaged from the standpoint of, they just don't feel like they can make a difference. They believe the government's there to put people, you know, put people under their thumb and nothing they do matters. But this is different. Independence is a different thing. So I say that for any of these folks, whether they're conservatives or liberals or libertarians, whoever it is, if you want a good shot at making your case for why your worldview is better than everybody else, this is the way that you do it. This is the only way that you do it. Because outside of this, there is no motivation for people to do a fundamental reexamination of how they are being governed. Well said, well said. And the last one, and this, I think I was on Tim Pool's show, the only time I've been on so far. And this came out, and it kind of caught me off guard. I hadn't thought it through. Is they said something like, in the kind of world, Bob, where this actually happened, where, you know, culturally, socially, things lined up so that Texas formally seceded, well, it wouldn't remain a cohesive nation within Texas. There's so many divisions and things like it would, Texas itself would then split up into two or three. The countries. slippery slope fallacy. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you say to that? Prove it. What do you base that on? You know, I mean, there people make the, Bob, people make these assertions all the time about Texas, you know, and it's not just Texas. I mean, you know, it's, they make all these assertions and it's like, Look, prove it. If you know, show me what evidence. And look, this is what I equate it to. You mentioned Brexit earlier and the doom and gloom predictions. You know, one of the biggest predictions of the outcome of Brexit would be all of these massive 
companies would move their headquarters out of London and move them into Europe. And you know what? It didn't happen. In in fact, the city of London experienced a massive boom in in corporate relocations, right? Companies moving to London because they know that's the place to do business. So, you know, people make these assertions and, and they're completely without founding, right? There's so when people say that, well, you know, Texas will split apart, there's all these divisions. Show me your evidence, right? Because at the end of the day, when you look at Texas or any other state, sure, you're going to have those internal divisions. You're going to have you're going to have differences in ideology across the spectrum. It's going to happen. But the one thing that you're going to see is, uh, particularly when you start talking about Texas, is you're going to see a cohesiveness there that you won't see in in many other places around the world. And you know the aforementioned Dr. Quartrip in, in his book that he released recently called "I Want to Break Free." a practical guide to building a, a new country, he talks about that sort of national identity, you know, from a civic nationalism perspective, but he talks about that national identity. Look, you come to Texas, you get waffle makers in the shape of Texas. You buy tortilla chips in the shape of Texas. If it has the shape of Texas on it, Texans will buy it. We don't care kind of what happens, where people sit on the political spectrum. At the end of the day, a Texan is a Texan is a Texan. So, I would just challenge whoever has that idea that Texas will fly apart. Show me what you got. I would be interested to see it because that's not what I see here in Texas. You know, that's, that is funny. You're right. With all the bumper stickers and stuff, like the shape of Texas itself is very iconic. And so. I mean, literally, you want anything. Keychains. I mean, you put the shape of Texas on something and a, Tex- and a Texan will buy it. That's just the way it is because that is the sort of pride we have for this place that we call home. Well, that is a very good note to end on. My guest this week, folks, has been Daniel Miller, president of the Texas Nationalist Movement and author of the book, Texit, Why and How Texas Will Lead the Union. Daniel, apologies for my voice, but I'm sure the listeners got a lot out of a conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thank you so much. I I really do appreciate it. Great conversation. Thanks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.